Welcome to Many Happy Returns, where we aim to make you a better investor. I'm Roman. And I'm Michael. It's said that failure is a better teacher than success. Dick Rowe of Deck Records famously turned down the chance to sign the Beatles, a catastrophic error, but he later went on to sign the Rolling Stones. Now that's learning from your mistakes. I want to know how best to approach our mistakes and stop them from derailing our investing goals. And in today's dumb question of the week, we ask why is Warren Buffett's investment company called Berkshire Hathaway? Okay, let's get into it. Investing is an area with so much complexity and uncertainty that it's inevitable that we're going to make countless mistakes. And Robin, between you and I, we've probably made them all, haven't we? (laughs) Yes. And I'm not embarrassed about it. I think of them as a badge of honour and a way to learn. So I really value my mistakes. I think they're very useful. And fantastic podcast material. Absolutely. Because people don't want to hear about successful people. They want to hear about people who've screwed up, perhaps worse than they have. But look, I think one way to do this, to avoid making really big mistakes, is to start off with the right goals. I think a lot of people get into investing with the wrong goals in mind. Probably the most important thing is to try to set a goal which is achievable. Now, some people think that, you know, they hear a story about the stock market and one of their friends has got rich, or maybe they bought crypto and made lots of money, life-changing money, and they want to emulate that huge return. Well, the chances are that that's not going to work. So I think if that's your goal, then investing is not for you. I always think it's a mistake to set your goal in monetary terms, really. Like the goal is not to accumulate rapidly a massive pile of money. Nice as that would be, right? That's not the goal. The goal is to live the life you want to live and therefore work backwards and how much money do I need and at what point in my life. And although it sounds a bit touchy-feely, I agree. I think you really should make a list of the things that make you happy and then think, well, what could I do to achieve a life where I can have more of that? And for some people, it might be money. But for other people, it's going to be things like family, friends, spending time doing activities which you really enjoy. There could be lots of different things. And a lot of them don't have any kind of monetary value. They're just having the time to do them. As I was thinking ahead of this episode, what is my real goal? Like, really, I should have decided this a decade ago, right before I started. But I think I'm optimizing for freedom and optionality and time, those three things. And money is a great way to do that, right? So I've been able to step away from work for a little while to look after my daughter and things like that. But that isn't to confuse the goal with just getting cash, right? Yeah, I think that's important. And look, if you've got kids, your goals change very rapidly, as you know. (laughs) So, you know, they make you realise what your goals actually are and what is really sweet in life. Once you have those goals, you can then start to work back from them. And your goals may change over time. It's very likely they will. And the reason we're talking about goals here is because that's the foundation, really, which all of your investing decisions rest on. And it's possible to set the wrong goals, right? Have a mistake right at that foundational level. And then everything that you build on top of that is going to be flawed. Yeah. So having some way to elicit that goal. And one way to do that is to visualize it. Just think, look, I'm going to project myself 20 years into the future and try and imagine what kind of lifestyle I want. You know, who do I want to spend time with? What do I want to spend time doing? then perhaps you can have a better idea of what your goals should be. And then the next step from goals, once we've set those, is to try and come up with a theory, an investing theory, of how we're going to meet those goals. And this is the next stage where you can make mistakes. You can have a mistaken theory. That's absolutely true. And I see people who fall at every hurdle, obviously, because I speak to a lot of people. 
The most common misconception is people see experts talking about assets, they talk about equity returns, they talk about short-term movements in asset prices. A lot of the commentary, about 90% of it, is about daily returns, which is complete nonsense. I mean, no one can predict what's going to happen over a one-day period or even a one-year period. What becomes predictable is the long term. And this is why I'm always banging on about it, because then you can start to make judgments. And you can look across different asset types. So these would be things like equities, bonds, commodities, and say, look, what is the realistic return over the long term? For commodities, it's the rate of inflation. For bonds, it's the rate of inflation plus maybe 2%, maybe 1%. And for equity, it's the rate of inflation plus five, six, even seven percent. And for most cryptocurrencies, it's the rate of inflation minus ninety-eight <laughs> percent. <laughs> well, it's true for most. It is at the moment. Like, how many cryptocurrencies yeah. are there? <laughs> well, it depends on the period that you look over, of course. You know, they've literally gone from zero to some non-zero values. That's an infinite return. Yeah, but people say that, like how they've massively outperformed any stock, for instance. But then I think it became a liquid tradable asset so early. It would be the equivalent of being able to invest in Facebook when it was just Mark Zuckerberg in his bedroom at university, right? Then, of course, the gain's going to be 10 billion percent. That's true. <laughs> anyway, sidetracked. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> So I think understanding what each of the different asset classes gives you, I think this model of harvesting a risk premium is a good one, where you can think of each asset as giving you some kind of return in order for putting your capital at risk. And equity, generally, stocks give you the highest return, the most consistent one anyway, over a long period of time. So this theory building element, I think, is where people tend to make most of their mistakes. So for example, we've covered the things before, like I can pick stocks, probably can't. I can time the market. You probably can't. But then you have things where you think you've got a great theory and you've constructed your portfolio, but then something unexpected happens. So this year, for instance, maybe your theory was, well, bonds will always hedge my equity. But then this year with high inflation, they've both fallen. And oh, maybe my theory had a little hole in it. <laughs> so I think as long as you've got the ability to change your mindset as new information comes in, also learning from history and calibrate your expectations based on a lot of history if it's available. And I think this point about asset allocation, it's most important which asset types you invest in rather than the particular things you invest in. That's the most important decision you've got to make up front. Were you a cross-asset strategist by any chance from him? Funnily enough, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so we've set our goals. We've avoided mistakes there as best we can. We've now come up with a theory to try and meet our goals and try to eliminate as many mistakes as possible there. Now the next stage is the execution of that theory. And here you can have mistakes as well. So you might have a perfect theory, but if you execute it wrongly, you'll be in trouble. Having said that, though, a lot of the best things I've ever done have been because I forgot to put a trade on or to sell something. <laughs> so <laughs> so ex execution or lack of execution has been a big winner for me. But you're right. I mean, things can go wrong. You could buy the wrong asset. You hear a lot of stories about tickers that look like another ticker where people buy the wrong fund because they think it's got the same name. You saw that in the GameStop meme saga, didn't you, where people were buying this weird, I think it was an Australian mining company, which also had the ticker GME. I mean, that's just mistake built on mistake, right? <laughs> that's mistakes all the way down. <laughs> But look, it happens, right? These things are confusing when you're first getting into investing. And I think even professionals have this kind of execution risk, don't they? You hear about 
fat finger trades, for instance, at investment companies? Yeah, investment banks, you know, this often happens where someone puts on a trade and they enter one too many zeros. There's got to be some sort of validation system before they put on the trade, right? You'd have thought so. Little pop-up. Did you mean to <laughs> invest a billion dollars? <laughs> well, billions, plausible. And that's the problem, which is that when you do trade huge amounts, then, you know, a billion would be plausible. And the other area where execution can go wrong is in terms of your security of your assets, right? You could be hacked. Yeah, so as an investment bank, they'd call that operational risk. So there might be some kind of insecurity on the platform you use, or perhaps your computer's been hacked, somebody's registering what your keystrokes are, and they know all your passwords. So that could happen. And that would be a mistake in your systems and procedures, really. I mean, I think the modern way to express this is all my apes are gone. <laughs> you seen that meme, Roman? Yes. <laughs> Someone lost all their NFTs, didn't they? And they posted about it on Twitter. I use that phrase just in my daily life now. If I just sort of make a mistake, drop some food on the floor, I just say, oh, all my apes, my apes are gone. Has <laughs> <laughs> Hannah started picking up on that? Yeah. Daddy's apes are gone. <laughs> Her favourite little phrase is, oh no. <laughs> <laughs> So execution is incredibly important though, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And so, for example, another problem might be the platform choice itself. Many people just go for a well-known name and they don't look at how much it charges them. And in fact, that might be eroding their long-term return more than any other mistake that they make. So I guess for most people, that's the kind of three stages where mistakes can creep in. Your goals, your theories, and your execution of those. But there's kind of a whole other category, which for most people in the population is where the big mistake is made when it comes to investing. And that is an error of omission, as it's called. So that's where you don't even really know you've made a mistake because you just don't know about something to know that you've made it. For instance, if you start investing too late because you didn't know anything about this when you were in your 20s, for instance, and that costs you a huge amount in compound returns. And for example, in the UK, the government now forces people to enrol in a pension. And that's probably the single best thing any government has done for a very long time. People don't realise that's good for them, but because they are enrolled, they're going to have at least some exposure to equity over the long term. So that's great. But I speak to many people who tragically have left it very late. There's only so much you can do if that's the case, because time and compounding are the two most powerful forces in investment. I've said it before, Roman, you can't fatten the pig on market day. No. <laughs> <laughs> Feed that pig throughout your life. <laughs> but these kind of omissions can be costly, not just getting started too late, but also if you forget, in inverted commas, that you have to pay your taxes <laughs> on your investment, that's going to be very costly. And other things which are probably a mistake, and this would fall into the execution category, would be investing when you're in a kind of heightened emotional state. If you're upset, if you're angry, or if you're not in a calm, dispassionate set of mind, or, you know, kind of in a fury of FOMO, whatever, because you can see what other people have achieved and you try to jump onto the bandwagon. And I think to some extent, this emotional state thing could drive you to make bad decisions. Yeah, and it can go right to the top of the tree in a way. It can lead you to setting the wrong goals. So I think I saw some of this during that meme stock frenzy in 2020, where a lot of people's goals sort of became, I want to stick it to the hedge funds that are shorting their meme stocks and Wall Street, and I'm going to take a huge amount of risk on the long side of these meme stocks. And it obviously blew up in their face, but their goal seemed to not be anything to do with their personal situation or even accumulating money. It was picking a fight. 
even though that actually put a lot of money into the hands of hedge funds, but also brokers, because these people tended to trade a lot. You know, I think sticking it to the man didn't really work. The challenge sometimes when it comes to thinking about mistakes is it's not actually that easy to identify them. It's really tempting to confuse bad outcomes with a mistake, but that's not always the case, is it? No, I think there's a brilliant book by Annie Duke called Thinking in Bets. So Annie Duke's a fantastic professional poker player. Oh yeah, world-class professional poker player. So she has to think in probabilistic terms. And unlike chess, poker also involves an element of chance. So you could have the best hand in the world, but you could still lose. So a key thing that poker players learn is not to do resulting. So not to confuse the outcome of your decisions with the quality of the decision. Yes. So you've got to judge the decision you made based on the information you had at the time you made it, right? So if you had the winning hand based on the time you made your bets and put the money into the pot, and then the final card got turned over and it gave a lucky win for that guy on the other side of the table, well, you didn't make a mistake. If you replay that situation many times, your expected return is positive. And another way she puts this, which is really nice, I think, and almost like something in quantum mechanics, where what you're actually competing with is various future versions of yourself. So it's almost like the future is a kind of branching tree of probabilities. And you simply have to choose the most likely outcome, which gives you the greatest possible gain. If we tie this back to investing, a simple situation where this plays out is, let's say I have a lump sum and I have to invest it, and I'm going to invest it in stocks for the long term. Now you have a choice, don't you? Do I invest it all in one go, or do I drip feed it into the market over the next year or two? Now, we've talked about this before, and the mathematically optimal thing is to put it all in in one go, because stocks tend to rise, and two-thirds of the time, that will outperform. Let's say we do that, we trust the maths, we put it all in, but then the market crashes straight afterwards. Okay, that's a disaster. But did I make a mistake? Well, I'd say no. I'd say you did exactly the right thing. This is why I think you shouldn't be hard on yourself if you go back and look at what you chose to do and what you chose to do failed, didn't achieve your goals, but it was just because of some unlucky fluke event. Well, I would actually say to the question, did I make a mistake there? Well, it depends. If you're going to beat yourself up about that market crash for the next 40 years and think, oh my goodness, what if I'd waited? You should have known that was your personality in advance and taken the cautious route. And so therefore it was a mistake. But if you're the kind of person that knew in advance, two thirds of the time, this is the right decision. Yeah, it can go wrong. I know it can go wrong, but that's not within my control. Then no, it's not a mistake. So I think that's a good point, which is that if you're the kind of person that would get very upset at a bad outcome, the drip feeding approach is probably better because it minimizes regret. And the thing underpinning all of this discussion is that despite the fact that we all make mistakes. It's part of being human. It's unavoidable. People really, really hate mistakes. And you see how this plays out in politics, for example, where if a politician ever says, oh yeah, I made a mistake, I'm going to U-turn, is the phrase, right? I'm going (laughs) to turn myself around and actually correct for this mistake. Everyone hates it. It's like, oh, this is terrible. (laughs) Where it's like, they're just doing the right thing in that situation. And in business, I think people are much more pragmatic about it, or at least they should be. You know, in the US, for example, if somebody fails in a startup, It doesn't mean they won't get any money in future, as long as they've learned from it. They won't get my money. No, nor mine, actually. (laughs) But But that's a difference, I think, between Europe and the US. Generally, the culture is much less forgiving of mistakes. And I think if you are in business, then what you learn is that a pivot, a good pivot, where you move from your initial business goals to something which is slightly different based on what people actually want, that's actually a positive thing. 
Yeah, it's true. I mean, when you're setting your goals in business, for instance, it's almost impossible to get that right at the start before you've actually delivered some kind of product to the market. Because I remember when I first started Pension Craft, there was literally nobody in the website. So I launched the thing. I thought, oh, it's not a problem. People will just come to it, you know. But there was absolutely no one. (laughs) I was just sitting there waiting for people to log into this website, expecting people to throng into the membership. But of course, it didn't happen. So then I spoke to some people and I learned that you have to actually market your stuff by giving away (laughs) like 99% of it free, which sounded crazy. But that pivot alone essentially has created my business. It's made you the man you are today. (laughs) Whatever that means. (laughs) (laughs) And I think when we're talking about identifying our mistakes, one of the red flags for me, the alarm bells start ringing, is when I hear people talking in absolute terms. So saying they're 100% sure of something, that this can't fail. I always think, no, there's always a chance it can fail. And that's a sign that there's a mistake being made to me. Oh, yeah, that's a big red flag. If someone's 100% certain, you know, if they say, look, this can give you 10% return with no risk, you know, you think, well, that's just nonsense. If you hear how many caveats we always put in our podcasts, when I come back to edit it, and the amount of times you say sort of, or maybe, or this could be wrong. (laughs) But that's a sign that we know what we're talking about. I just think it shows that people are trustworthy. You know, if they come up with a forecast and they say, look, this is exactly what's going to happen, that is worrying. And this is why I love the Bayesian approach, which is to treat everything as a probability distribution, even your forecasts, but also even looking at the past. You know, you can't be perfectly sure that what we've got as a historical record is accurate. So I think everything is a probability distribution. And learning to live with that is probably one of the most difficult things. The probability of living with probabilities is that what you're talking about. (laughs) (laughs) We're just living with uncertainty. I think that's what we all have to do. I mean, most people just ignore uncertainty. You know, they just say, look, you know, I get my car, I drive to the shops, I come home. They don't worry about the possibility they'll be hit by another car or that something awful will happen. Yeah, there's definitely been a move towards so-called positive thinking over the decades, which, to be honest, Robin, I hate that. (laughs) I think it's a bad approach. (laughs) I'm more into the stoicism, that kind of philosophy, where they actually talk about something called negative visualization, where when you're making a decision, think about, like actively think about all the things that can go wrong And it will do two things. It will prepare you. So if it does go wrong, you're not going to react emotionally because you've already thought about it. And it will also help you make better decisions because you're not just sort of flying blind. Oh, I like that. I think that's an interesting way of doing it. But it's kind of against what a lot of pop psychology says these days. (laughs) (laughs) But people talk about manifesting as well. You know, you think if I think I'm going to get a million, it's going to happen. Well, that's pretty silly, I think. It's usually said by people who say, give me a thousand dollars for my course. (laughs) You manifest a positive outcome. For me, in the small print. (laughs) But I think it's also important to have a historical record of what you've done and also why. Because if you go back in time, it's really easy to rewrite your mental narrative. And we do this in relationships all the time where your version of what happened and your partner's version may be very different. And of course, you think you're right. Yeah, she never asked me to empty the dishwasher. I think that's a fact. (laughs) So if you want to fix that with investing, it's very easy. Just keep an investment journal. And it doesn't have to be fancy. You just write down what you did and why. At the time you did it. At the time you did it, not afterwards. And if you go back and read it, it is pretty shocking. You know, when you read what you used to think. And of course, with the benefit of hindsight, it's really obvious what the mistakes in thinking were. 
And the other thing is just seek out opposing views to your own. Don't live in your own bubble and just listen to people who agree with you. So Julia Galef, I'm a big fan of her book, The Scout Mindset. She describes the distinction between the soldier mindset, where reasoning is kind of combat, where you have to convince other people, being wrong is seen as a defeat, and you seek evidence to confirm your beliefs. She contrasts that with a scout mindset. Now, a scout's job is to make a map of the world, which is as accurate as possible. So reasoning is described as map making, and being wrong means simply updating your map and correcting it. And you actually seek out evidence to improve your map and to contradict your beliefs. So I love that description. And that's the way to identify your mistakes in retrospect and help you avoid making the same mistake over and over again. So there are various ways you can kind of use the scout mindset to challenge your own views. For example, when you're listening to somebody's viewpoint, do you judge opposition views more harshly? That's interesting, because I've often heard it said that we judge ourselves by our intentions, but we judge others by their behaviour and their actions, which I think is true. (laughs) But I think that might be a good way of trying to root out what it is actually that you believe. Just look at your reaction to other people's opinions. Or another way to approach this is to put yourself into the mindset of your opposition. Do you understand the argument well enough that you could explain it to someone else as if that was your view? Oh, interesting. Yeah. So I would have to make the maximalist case for Bitcoin, for instance. Yeah, that would be fun. (laughs) (laughs) Or what if all of your allies, all of your friends suddenly changed their mind? Would you still stick with your view? Oh, interesting. If you came to me next week and said, stocks are terrible for the long term, sell everything, (laughs) would I actually sell everything? That's a good point. I don't know, actually. I would definitely listen to it and think, hmm, what's Roman on about now? Has he gone mental or has he come across some new information? (laughs) Well, you know, if it was me, it would be new evidence. But that's the way I'd always approach it, which is to see what the evidence is and then see whether I think it's kind of credible. But I think these different ways of testing your beliefs are very important. And in a sense, you're a kind of curator of beliefs. You shouldn't stick with any dogma. The belief is not you. That's the most important thing. The belief is just a collection of things which you're constantly updating throughout the course of your life. I feel like we're getting into some sort of heavy Buddha stuff here or something. (laughs) We're really doling out the wisdom today, Roman. (laughs) I think all of these are general principles which apply in all avenues of life. I think these are great ways of identifying your mistakes. But as we said earlier, we will make mistakes. Some small and minor, but some big. And part of being human is learning to live with those mistakes. How would you go about that? Well, I think, first of all, understanding that you will make mistakes is important. A lot of us, particularly if we're young, we enter the world and we think we're going to do everything right. Our parents were idiots. But it doesn't take long until you realise that actually it's always difficult to make very good decisions continually. Yeah, definitely. And I think if you can, the way to see mistakes is to reframe them as a learning opportunity. Cheesy as that sounds, it is the right approach. And to think, oh, how can I learn from this to become a better investor or just, you know, a better person? Because maybe that mistake isn't recoverable in investing terms. It's gone to zero. (laughs) But you think, oh, that's taught me something about how I react to adversity, which I can now apply in my life. But it's funny, my mum always used to say that when you're young, you don't make mistakes, you learn. But as you get older, it does become a mistake. And I do hear some pretty tragic stories about people who've made some really awful decisions and they're not recoverable. You know, it's a very difficult conversation. You know, you have to also appreciate that you can't turn it around sometimes. You just have to make the best of it. I think definitely when you're young, you can afford to make more mistakes, can't you, in investing? 
But as you approach retirement, if you make a big mistake, it can have catastrophic consequences. And then it becomes a question of appreciating what you do have. Yeah. Not just focusing on what you've lost and that potential life you've lost. Like, for example, if you imagine you made an offer of 54.20 per share for this company, which looked really good at the time you made it. And then you thought, oh man, the market's fallen. I really want to get out of this company. Do I really have to buy it? But then you sort of roped in, but you've spent months just slagging off this company saying it's a giant fraud, but then you're forced to complete and it's a catastrophic mistake. You've spent tens of billions on this. Just what would you do, Roman? What would you do? <laughs> I'd get the lawyers in. <laughs> I'd charge $20 for a blue tick. Anyway. <laughs> it's come down to $8 now. That's it, Okay. <laughs> Uh, I mean, I think the thing with catastrophic mistakes is that any advice you give to someone in that situation, if they're still in an emotional state, which they probably are, is going to sound patronizing and it's going to sound cheesy because yeah. it is things like maintaining perspective, be grateful for what you have. And these things like are true, but maybe they have to kind of realize them on their own. Because I think what's interesting about stoicism, it's more of a reframing of exactly the same events in life as other people experience, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, to me, the heart of the stoic approach is to focus on what you can change and don't worry about the things that you can't. So sort of by definition, the past and the decisions that you made, the mistakes that you made, they are things you can't change, right? Yeah. Like there's no point rationally focusing on them. It's harder said than done, obviously, when you've made some sort of terrible mistake, but it is the way forward. And I often speak to people and they show me the portfolio and they know what I'm going to say. <laughs> they know what I'm going to say. They just want to hear me say it. Yeah. And the question is always, you know, what should I do? Should I just start from scratch or should I keep the stuff I've got because it's gone down in value? And it's not an easy decision. It never is. And I think this brings us on to how to learn from your mistakes, because we've talked about living with them, but the key now is learning from them, right? And there's a great quote from Annie Duke to do with this. If you look at the reasons given for accidents on insurance claims, you have these real gems like, I collided with a stationary truck coming the other way. <laughs> <laughs> That's 2022 in markets. <laughs> uh. The guy was all over the road. I had to swerve a number of times before I hit him. <laughs> right, yeah. So to me, I take that to mean the first step in learning from your mistakes is to acknowledge them honestly and take responsibility. In investing, for instance, maybe you were wrong. Maybe it wasn't the market that was wrong because you often hear people say, oh, I got it right. It's just the market was crazy. <laughs> Or again, if you've taken financial advice, you can easily blame that person for giving you the advice which led to making a loss. Not us, because we don't offer financial advice. Obs. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm glad I don't have to, because I think that's the natural relationship between the advisor and the person who's advised, which is if they succeed, they'll never give you the credit. But if they fail, they'll probably blame you. It's just human nature to do that. Yeah. I mean, there does need to be a statutory duty on advisors because they're kind of there to provide professional guidance where someone is sort of admitting, I don't know the answer. So there has to be some kind of guardrails. But yeah, you've got to take responsibility as well. But I think explaining exactly what it is you're providing is really important there and saying, look, I don't have all the answers. I can't guarantee a good outcome. All I can do is produce something, a portfolio, which will give you pretty good returns over the long term. I think that's the most that they can offer. But saying that, you know, this is going to give you great returns and it's going to beat the market consistently, you know, all these kind of promises. I think that's where the real issues are. I think sometimes we will see it ourselves. People might know that we've been investing for a while and maybe we know what we're doing <laughs> and they'll come to us 
parents, friends, whatever, and say, oh, well, what should I do? And then my approach is always, well, one, listen to the podcast. But two, two, I'm not going to sort of say anything specific. I'm going to say, well, what are your goals? And then read these different things about building a portfolio that might work for you. Because if you just give someone an answer and say, buy this, this and this and hold it forever, if they don't know why they're doing that, when it's down 30% in a bear market, they're going to sell it and they're going to be angry with you. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that explains a lot, actually. (laughs) (laughs) But look, I think a lot of this is understanding our individual approaches to risk as well. If there's one difference between professional investors and people who are just new to investment, it's their approach to risk. And in terms of practical steps when it comes to learning from our investing mistakes, like, for example, if you've lost, you know, 50 or 60% of your portfolio on some big bet, I think there are a couple of things which might work. So one thing we've talked about before is the fund portfolio and how maybe it's good to build a little safe sandbox for your risky bets. You often see this in software development, say, where you will sandbox the risky bits and it can't go and infect the rest of the operating system, like the critical functions. And I think it kind of works with investing. And make sure the risk is limited. Don't go buying naked calls in there, for instance. (laughs) But look, in the sandbox, it's great. I think it's kind of like a liberation almost because, you know, I can do all the crazy stuff which I've always wanted to do. If I wanted to buy Tesla calls, I could. If I want to buy cryptocurrency, I can. And, you know, it doesn't matter if I screw up. And it is just learning experience. And it is encapsulated. So it won't kind of destroy my retirement (laughs) if it goes wrong, when it goes wrong. Another good metaphor is I used to have a friend who was really into motorbikes and to learn how far you can tip a bike over before coming off. Clearly, if you're riding on a motorbike on a main road, that could kill you. But he used to have this thing where he used to go to where there was some kind of support harness. So even if you fell over, you wouldn't kind of break your legs. But that way you could actually push it to the real edge and push the bike really low down and feel what it feels like as the controls lost. So the sandbox is like that. It's a kind of safe play area where you can experiment and things can go wrong and you don't hurt yourself. And you can lose a little bit of money rather than a lot of money. Than all your money, yeah. Yeah, so we talked about <laughs> poker a lot today, weirdly. And I've heard it said that the best poker players, they know they're going to make mistakes. They know they're going to lose hands and lose money on certain hands. The reason they're profitable players is because when they lose, they lose a small amount. And when they win, they win a big amount. It sounds obvious, but it's the way to think in investing too. And focus on what works. If you've got some kind of strategy, how well has it performed in the past? So that's one way, this sandbox. And the second practical tip is to put friction in the way of bad behavior. So this kind of comes from nudge theory, which is all the rage in politics circles these days. It got a lot of flack though, didn't it? Yeah, there's a lot of people that don't like it, but I think it has something to it, given that we're creatures of habit. So for example, if your mistake, your problem, is that you're reluctant always to put money in markets, you're always scared, then I think your core portfolio might benefit from selecting your fund or two that's in there and automating your investments. So every month when you get your paycheck, the amount you're going to invest just comes out of your account and goes straight into your investments. You don't even have to think about it because then the friction you've put in the way of your bad behavior, and here your bad behavior would be holding back from the market, the friction is, oh, I have to log into my account and manually cancel that direct debit. Like that's a pain. Who's going to do that? No one cancels their direct debits. That's why gyms make a load of money. (laughs) So, you know, putting the right frictions can be helpful. I think that's a great way. I mean, I do it by having a diary entry, which says, Roman put money into portfolio. (laughs) Old school. (laughs) 
a paper diary glued to the wall. <laughs> well, it's almost post-its, you know, it's just the electronic equivalent. But it does force me to do that. And now I have accountability through the members because I tell them what I do. That's also another way to ensure that you do the right behaviour. Surround yourself with a community where people will try and steer you in the right way. And if you have to explain your actions, you know, that becomes quite uncomfortable psychologically. So it kind of steers you to do the right things. Yeah. I mean, I've heard it said that you don't really understand something until you can explain it to other people. And I think that's true with investing. So we talked about the diary idea earlier, where you write down as you're making a decision or an investment, what you're doing and why you're doing it. And you're kind of explaining it to yourself. And if you're really struggling when you come to write down, oh, I'm making this decision because dot, dot, dot. If you can't fill in after the dot, 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 you're making a mistake. (laughs) Because I read about it in Shares magazine. Yeah, no, exactly. You can't just write for the lols. (laughs) So to summarise then, I think you've got to acknowledge that you will make mistakes. That's just natural. And treat them as something which is a positive. You know, you will learn from them. All you have to do is start off with the right goals and then probably keep things a little bit simple so that you're not going to make an egregious error early on. And then tune things along the way and make a journal so that you remember why you did things. And maybe surround yourself with a community of like-minded people that will steer you in the right direction and create some kind of accountability. And if it all goes wrong, this is what my wife said, book a power hour with Roman. <laughs> <laughs> so I think accountability is really important when it comes to investing. And the Pension Craft community is a very friendly place which gives you those gentle nudges to encourage you to invest well. If you want to learn more about that and learn how to sign up, just go to pensioncraft.com. Okay, today's dumb question of the week is why is Warren Buffett's investment company called Berkshire Hathaway? Because it seems like a weird name. It just sounds like a kind of golf equipment manufacturer to me. And for English people, it's really hard to pronounce because we'd say Berkshire, wouldn't we? Yeah, I used to live in Berkshire and it annoys me every time I have to say Berkshire. (laughs) (laughs) No, I just love this story. This is from his 2014 letter to shareholders where he lays out the whole story and it's so funny. Yeah, I mean, it's basically admitting a huge, huge mistake is what's behind this name. So when he started out, he had a company called Buffett Partnership Limited, BPL. Well, that makes a lot more sense as a name, doesn't it? Well, that would be great. (laughs) If only he'd stuck with that. So Berkshire was a northern textile manufacturer in the textile industry, which was essentially shutting down at the time. Yeah, it was really struggling, wasn't it? So you might think, well, why is Warren Buffett investing in this sort of failing industry? So he bought 7% of the company, and I just love his description of why he did it. He bought his first slug of shares in December 1962. The stock was selling for $7.50, which was a discount per share from the working capital of $10.25. And the book value was $20.20. So the way he describes that is that it's like picking up a discarded cigar butt that had one puff remaining in it. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's such a like disgusting thing to do. He knows it. He's like, oh, this is a terrible company. Yeah, it's so cheap. <laughs> <laughs> Though the stub might be ugly and soggy, the puff would be free. There you go. <laughs> so yeah, he's got 7% of this company and he knows it's bad. The company was run by a guy called Seabury Stanton. This is Berkshire Hathaway. And he said to Buffett, at what price would you sell your holdings in Berkshire? And Buffett said, $11.50. Stanton said, okay, we've got a deal. 
And then Warren Buffett was waiting for the letter, the formal terms of the deal, and it came through at a little bit less. So he only offered $11.375 a share. Like you might think that's meaningless. That's not much difference, which is true. But Buffett was very, very pissed off <laughs> and then went down the route of making emotional decisions. So it was partly out of spite, I think, that instead of taking that offer, he just bought the whole company. <laughs> yeah, what a crazy decision. And then he fires Stanton and ends up owning this essentially dying business. And he describes that as being the dog that caught the car. Yeah, he literally says, and I quote, that was a monumentally stupid decision. Like, don't invest out of a grudge, I would say, is a good lesson from this. And then what followed was just a tale of woe. So he says, during the 18 years that followed 1966, we struggled unremittingly with the textile business, all to no avail. And then Buffett says, if that was his first mistake to commit so much of his resources to this dying business, he says, I quickly compounded the error. Indeed, my second blunder was far more serious than the first and eventually became the most costly in my career. So what he did then, he had a friend who wanted to sell him this insurance business called Nico. This was Jack Ringwald who owned the company. And he wanted to sell to Buffett. You know, he didn't want to sell to a nameless company. And this is a good business, isn't it? Buffett knows insurance. Yeah, this is his bread and butter, you know. This is how he started. And so instead of buying it as part of BPL, Buffett Partnership Limited, he bought it to be part of Berkshire Hathaway. Yeah, he used Berkshire's money, didn't he? So why was this a mistake? Because if he had bought it as part of BPL, he'd be 100% owner of the really good company. Instead, he ended up siphoning money away from the good company into this hugely loss-making company and essentially burning that cash. Yeah, he says this stupid decision meant that 39% of this really good insurance business ended up owned by legacy shareholders of Berkshire, which he had no obligation to and no responsibility to. And he says that decision diverted something like $100 billion or so away from BPL and his partners. That's pretty bad, isn't it? <laughs> but then he finishes it just beautifully. He says... And now some good news. The northern textile industry is finally extinct. You need no longer panic if you hear that I've been spotted wandering around New England. So you know, He just couldn't help himself. He just kept on going back to it like a moth to the flame. But what I take from this story is that, yes, the reason Buffett's company is named Berkshire Hathaway is because basically he accidentally turned this northern textile company into a conglomerate which owned, in the end, you know, a big slug of Coca-Cola and oil refineries and railroads. And Apple. And Apple. Like, it's just an accident of history. But the lesson is, as you see here in his shareholder's letter, he acknowledges his mistake, he's learned from it, and he's gone on to be maybe the greatest investor of all time, right? So a mistake isn't necessarily the end. Thank you for joining us for Many Happy Returns. It would be great if you could leave us a quick rating or review on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to the show. And do remember to check out pensioncraft.com for all the information about our membership, courses, and investment coaching options. Many Happy Returns is a Pension Craft production, co-hosted and executive produced by Romin Nakiza and Michael Pugh. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes and is not financial advice. We do not provide recommendations or endorse any decision to buy, sell or hold any security. We cannot be held responsible for any actions listeners may take and investors are encouraged to seek independent financial advice.